Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylock, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show today Roger Severino, former director of the Office for Civil Rights at the United States Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, under the Trump administration. In this position, and in fact in other positions he's held, Roger was instrumental in protecting conscience rights and religious liberty. Our podcast today will focus on this work, and we're also going to talk about the nomination of Javier Bercera to head HHS. Recently, Roger was appointed Senior Fellow at the Ethics Public Policy Center, where he now directs the Center's HHS Accountability Project. Roger Severino, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Hey, Joe. Glad to be on. Great to have you. So I ask this question of every new guest on our podcast, and you are obviously a new guest on our podcast. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience, leading up to your work with the Office for Civil Rights. Happy to. I'm an LA kid transplanted to the East Coast, trying to get used to the weather. I'm still in denial that it actually snows around here. <laughs> and I it's came snowing today. Yeah. And I, I came eastward mostly through schooling. I went to USC for undergrad, a grad degree at Carnegie Mellon in public policy, and then a law degree at Harvard, where I met my wife, the amazing Carrie Severino, which you should all know and love. And from there, I, I started work on conscience and religious freedom. Even in law school, I was head of the Pro-Life Religious Liberty Club there. Another illustrious member was Senator Tom Cotton. We both met there. And I joined the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty mm-hmm. after law school, where I really cut my teeth and learned to become a lawyer for real and represented people of all faiths. I was there for five years. It was wonderful and heartbreaking at the same time, seeing some of the the difficulties people have to just be able to live out their faith from zoning disputes in America to uh, some of the worst cases were church burnings in Sri Lanka that I investigated. So I saw the whole spectrum of potential violations of religious freedom, both here and abroad. I took those skills to go to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, brought in my portfolio, and it was an honor to be able to step into court and say I represented the United States of America, vindicating people people's civil rights on race, sex, national origin, religious freedom, disability. It was a tremendous privilege and honor. Followed by two years at the Heritage Foundation, advocating for good family policies, religious liberty policies, and then in the Trump administration at HHS as head of their civil rights office. It's it's been an amazing run. And the four years we did, I'm very proud of the work we did, uh, reestablishing conscience and religious freedom as a primary civil right, as well as some tremendous work we did on disability rights. It was an incredible experience and so proud of the work we were able to accomplish. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of that work as we move through this interview, but I've got a very important question to ask you because on your on the website of the Ethics Public Policy Center, it says that you teach salsa and swing dance. And so I, you got to say something about that. I do. I do. And I try to be a Renaissance person. So <laughs> I, I dance. I picked it up in law school after I went back to Columbia, where my family's from being the Colombian American cousin who did not know how to dance salsa. It was embarrassing. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I vowed when I come back and I show them a thing or two and I fell in love with salsa dancing. It was the music I grew up with and then started teaching after joining a performance group. I even taught my colleagues at DOJ Civil Rights. And it's a way of building bridges and bringing people together. And I love it. It's just incredibly fun too. That's awesome. I love it. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Office for Civil Rights at HHS? What is this office and what is its purpose? It defends our civil rights with respect to healthcare and human services passed by Congress. And unfortunately, only some of those laws were enforced under the Obama administration. And I fear under the Biden administration, especially with his picks for Javier Becerra as head of HHS and Dr. Rachel Levine as the Assistant Secretary for Health. I think these are divisive picks that are going to roll back the conscience and religious freedom protections that are in law that we actually enforced under President Trump. So we enforced race, sex, national origin, disability, color, age, and religion. And that was the change. It was a breath of fresh air. We opened the doors and said, these laws that have been passed by Congress on a bipartisan basis are going to be enforced. And the complaints came rolling in. We had an instance of an order of nuns being required by Javier Becerra to provide abortion insurance for fellow nuns. It's outrageous that he went all the way to resist the the Weldon Amendment, which is a bipartisan federal law that prohibits that discrimination, and it cost him. My office held him in violation of that law to the tune of two hundred million dollars per quarter of Medicaid funds that they would that would be disallowed. That's a lot of money. It sends a very clear enforcement message. Again, enforcing this for the very first time under the Trump administration. We'll see what President Biden does if he's going to retreat or not. But nobody should be forced to pay for or refer for abortion against their will. There is a broad American consensus, regardless of what you believe about the legality of abortion, you don't force people to do it or pay for it. You know, since we're since we're talking about Javier Bracero, let, let's let's go there. So um, obviously he had the issue with the the little sisters of the poor. And what are some of the other issues uh, that or some of the other challenges that a, a Bracera directed HHS will will bring? The problems with Bracera are legion. First, in the middle of a pandemic, he has no public health experience. That's exactly the wrong pick when we're facing a, a national health care crisis. Our previous HHS secretaries had deep experience in healthcare, and we cannot depart from that. There's far too much at risk. Second, his focus has been on reigniting the culture wars. He sees abortion as primary healthcare. He is focused like a laser beam on this to the point where he wants to force people to assist in the abortion machinery. First, he wants to make sure that it's funded publicly in violation of the Hyde Amendment. President Biden has said he's going to retreat from the the Hyde Amendment. And as much as President Biden has been touting his Catholic faith and Becerra as well, this is going right in the teeth of positions from the Vatican, the Pope on down, that Catholics should be first and foremost respecting human life from conception until natural death, requiring people to pay for abortion goes contrary to those fundamental principles. So he should not be touting his faith when he's going directly against it on this this primary issue. Becerra himself was part of the machinery of furthering abortion by requiring 
abortion insurance coverage near universally, even against religious institutions like the Guadalupana sisters, those are the order of nuns I mentioned, being required to buy abortion insurance for fellow nuns. Now, first, they're not going to need abortion insurance, right? If you know anything about nuns, you know, that that's enough said on that. Second, they don't want it. <laughs> they actively don't want it. And they complained to my office when I was head of the civil rights office saying, can you help us get him off our backs? And we did to the tune of $200 million in a disallowance of Medicaid funds because it's a gross violation of the Weldon Amendment. They already fund abortion in California. Why do you need nuns to be providing it to fellow nuns? Why do you need to force parents to provide it to their, their teenage daughters or even up to their 23-year-old 20, daughters covered under their family policies? Imagine the strife you're causing in families who disagree with abortion. There's abortion if you want it in California. Don't force people to do it and provide it themselves. That's that's, that is a, a totalitarian impulse, which is, in fact, what Justice Kennedy said in the NIFLA case, which I hope we have time to talk about. Pro-life pregnancy resource centers were also targeted by Javier Becerra because of their pro-life message. He wanted to draft them into, again, the abortion machinery to make them part of the mouthpieces, telling people instead of, hey, here are alternatives to abortion, forcing them to say, here's where you could get an abortion, which is just such a gross violation of conscience. Yeah, there's so many, so many things on the list of, of Javier Bercera. What about uh, Dr. Levine? Dr. Levine is focused on transgender activism. And I'm afraid that there may be a move to push ideology over science. And I had met with Dr. Levine in the past when I was head of the Civil Rights Office, which talked about transgender issues in medicine and the expertise Dr. Levine has in terms of knowing uh, the different options is deep. However, it should not be a replacement for where the science is now. HHS was asked to issue a national coverage decision as to whether or not there was sufficient medical evidence to indicate that sex reassignment surgery was medically indicated. The answer by HHS under Obama was no, that there's too much at risk. There is not enough uh, solid scientific evidence on the issue to have a national coverage decision. The off-label use of hormones on children has not been studied long-term. The risks are serious for permanent sterility in children. And before you take these drastic steps, there has to be a very deep scientific consensus behind it and significant flexibility for doctors to come to their own conclusions because you don't want to replace the independent judgment of doctors and, for, and force them to violate their own medical judgment, as well as forcing them to violate their own conscience. We had rolled back a regulation under Obama that had redefined sex to cover sex reassignment surgeries, et cetera, under civil rights laws. We, de we dove in to the science and the medicine and examined all the, the, comments that were submitted in that rulemaking, and we came to the conclusion that the law itself did not support a redefinition. Now, that is, of course, thrown into confusion based on a decision by the Supreme Court, the Bostock decision, Bostock, yep. written by Justice Gorsuch. So we'll see what happens in the future. But he also said that religious freedom has to be protected no matter what happens on the question of gender identity. 
by President Biden's picks of Becerra being first, and as well as Dr. Levine, it's a signal that he's very interested in pushing the cultural war first, as opposed to taking care of the pandemic. And that that is a very troubling sign. Yeah. And just uh, the NCBC being here in Pennsylvania, Dr. Levine is the uh, the public health director for the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and just for those who do not know, he's a, a biological man who uh, identifies as a woman. And, you know, so bringing that ideology in to, uh, you know, into, into the Biden administration. So Roger, I'm just wondering if we, we could now kind of come back to, to your work at OCR. So about a year ago, so we're, 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 recording this podcast on the 22nd of February. So at the the 2020 NCBC Bishops Workshop, um, it was in February 2020, you spoke. And at that workshop, you offered an overview of how the Trump administration was protecting conscience rights and religious liberty, and, and particularly the, your work through the Office for Civil Rights. And I was watching the reaction of the audience. Um, and I was really, it was really interesting to to see that there were a lot of bishops who were really surprised at the work that the Trump administration and your office had been doing. So I'm wondering if you could give us some specific examples of how under your leadership, the Office for Civil Rights worked to protect conscience and religious liberty, particularly with regard to health care. Certainly. President Trump and Vice President Pence made it the most pro-life, pro-religious liberty administration in history. And I think that's unquestioned. They not only allowed me to do what I did at HHS, but encouraged it. And President Trump himself announced our conscience protection regulation, which brought life and enforcement mechanisms to 25 conscience protection statutes, some of these best kept secrets that these laws were out there and just were waiting to be enforced. We staffed up. We now had 17 career professionals dedicated to conscience and religious freedom that are still there. And there's no reason that the Biden administration shouldn't see this as a treasured, valuable resource, just as we have fantastic professionals that were focused on other protected classes, race and disability. There's been a tremendous coalition between pro-life and pro-disability rights forces and advocacy groups. We saw this in the pandemic where the question was, what do we do if we run out of resources and we don't have enough ventilators? Who gets it? Well, unfortunately, at the beginning, we saw that states had discriminatory provisions that would have prohibited certain people from getting ventilators if they had disabilities. One state in particular said, quote, unquote, persons with severe mental retardation, using that old archaic language even, would have been flatly ineligible for a ventilator if there was a a rationing system. Imagine that if somebody with, say, Down syndrome would show up and were told, sorry, no ventilator for you. Somebody more worthy is going to get one. And that utilitarian ethic we push back on from the pro-life side, from the pro-disability rights side, and state after state after our interventions changed their actual guidelines and programs and hospitals followed suit. So we dodged a bullet there. And those sorts of things would not have happened had we not had the right personnel in place through the leadership of the Trump administration, President Trump, Vice President Pence, the support of Secretary Azar. It would not have happened. And that's why personnel is policy. I was troubled to see that some of the disability rights initiatives that we had put in place and left for the Biden administration to finish were pulled down off the website. Why in the world would they do that? And why are they not embracing and running with the conscience religious freedom division that we stood up? Those professionals are there to do the hard work. The complaints are, are, are many and the people need help. 
So we're, we're hopeful that, well, first we're hopeful that Javier Becerra will not be confirmed. I think, as you saw with the OMB nominee, who who's imperiled, a divisive figure in such a closely divided Senate is skating on thin ice and that ice is cracking. And as Becerra's antagonism towards people of life, towards people of faith is becoming more and more known. And I, I think his, his nomination is in peril. And I think President Biden should pick somebody who's more qualified and more of a uniter on these issues and not there to divide us on such fundamental questions of life and religious liberty. What's going to happen with things like the conscience division with somebody like Becerra, who was such an, he was my main antagonist. I held him in violation of the law twice, twice. And now he wants to be the head of the agency. It it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I was wondering, Roger, I wonder if you could tell us what is going to happen to the complaints that were filed in the office during your tenure. And I'm thinking specifically of Megan Kraft. Um, we did a we did a podcast with her, um, and, and our listeners might know who she is. She's a, a physician assistant from Oregon who was fired by a Catholic healthcare system for actually practicing as a Catholic. And she filed a um, she filed a complaint with your office. And I know things you know things move at the speed that they move, um, but the, you know nothing has been at least through the Office of Civil Rights, nothing had been. Um, how shall we say adjudicated or, or you know, taken care of by the time the Trump administration ended and, and you left your position? What's going to happen to her and and all those other people who have who have submitted claims essentially? Mm-hmm. Well, they're in the hands of the career professionals that have been examining every case and giving it a fair shake, and we brought groundbreaking enforcement actions that had never been done before. I already mentioned Becerra losing $200 million for going after nuns. I already mentioned the NIFLA-type cases of pregnancy resource centers being discriminated against. We also sued, and after holding in violation, a hospital, the University of Vermont Medical Center, for forcing a nurse to assist in an abortion. So those sorts of cases where there are clear violations of law need to be enforced. We enforce them and that has to continue. So any case that was in process, the career professionals give their best advice as to what should be done. And if there's a violation, they will recommend enforcement. That's their job and their duty. And then it's in the hands of the political appointees as to what they're going to do with that. They, unfortunately, in the previous eight years of Obama, left cases languishing and neglected that entire area of law. Very little action was done. They had one case that uh, that I know of that actually was brought to any sort of enforcement. Times had changed in the previous four years, and it shouldn't be a flip-flopping based on who happens to be the president and who, who they appoint. It sounds as if, if, if a Sarah were to get through, I would expect him to try to shut down as many in- investigations as possible because he is so obsessed with things like abortion. And if you have somebody that's so ideologically driven that would replace impartial law enforcement with ideology. And we don't need that. We need actual enforcement of the laws. The Weldon Amendment, for example, had been passed on a bipartisan basis from the 90s and signed by presidents of both parties and congresses of both parties. We don't retreat from that. When you have such a broad consensus, you enforce it. And we want to hold uh, President Biden accountable. And that's why at EPPC, where I am now, we launched an HHS accountability project to do just that, to watch them, to make sure they're accountable for the law and the people who put them in office. Yeah. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the later in the interview. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about a. Uh, I, I am hoping it's a win in the closing days of the Trump administration. There's a lot of talk about vaccines with COVID-19, and we're not talking about COVID-19 vaccines here, but there was some movement on HHS working to get more ethically produced vaccines for, say, pediatric um, diseases and things like that. Getting those ethically produced vaccines more available in the U.S. Can you talk about that? This was an example of groundbreaking work that was also common sense. It was such a win-win. You have so many families in the thousands who had complained to HHS saying, we do not have access to vaccines that can help keep our kids safe that are ethically derived, specifically MMR, the rubella part of MMR, which is the R in that acronym, was derived from aborted fetal cells. And still to this day, they use cell cultures derived from aborted fetal cells to continue to do the manufacturing today. Many people of goodwill do not accept that as a moral way of vaccinating their children because of the tainted source. Unfortunately, Merck is the only producer of MMR and have conscientious families over a barrel. They are unwilling to split up the MMR or to use a morally derived version of it. They have monopoly power. So a lot of families are stuck of either violating their conscience and getting their vaccination or taking the risks. So Japan has ethically derived versions of MMR. And we brokered the relationship between complainants who complained to our office under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because HHS had banned the importation uh, of bulk vaccines of this sort. Generally, for very good reason, they have controls for the safety and efficacy of vaccines. However, when, the, when we have no reason to believe that the Japanese, Japanese vaccines are somehow unsafe or not efficacious, no reason whatsoever to doubt that they would work, and these are some dangerous diseases. They, these families want to vaccinate their kids. They want it. So why aren't we facilitating it? The public health question is a no-brainer. Do you want to import a vaccine that we have no reason to believe is unsafe in limited numbers to kids who would otherwise not get vaccinated for dangerous diseases? It is an easy question in my mind. And it's more than just as from a public health measure. The law requires it. And that's what we concluded at HHS. My office looked into the question. We, have author we had authority over the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the law says, if there is a burden imposed on religious exercise by a government entity, they must, must provide an accommodation to relieve that burden unless there's a compelling interest otherwise. There was no compelling interest here. There is no good reason to say you cannot import a vaccine to help keep your kids safe that we have no reason to believe is somehow not anything but safe. No compelling interest to stop it. HHS had done it before, in fact. It actually allowed vaccines. And I ran into so much bureaucratic intransigence. The FDA fought tooth and nail to let this happen. But the law actually required it. The law says, if we are burdening, you must allow the exception unless there's a really strong reason against it. And in this case, there wasn't. So you could go on the website of hhs.gov slash OCR to see the process of how to get morally derived vaccines imported from Japan. And if you do it in bulk through one pediatrician per you know, group of families, you could do it at a, at a cost-effective way. And again, this is such an easy win-win. You are vaccinating kids. You are 
allowing for conscience to be respected. That's ex- exactly what the law calls for. And in fact, the Supreme Court said, if government agents do not respect the Religious Free- Freedom Restoration Act, there are, there are certain circumstances where they may be personally liable. And when you have government experts on this saying, you got you to gotta allow this to happen, and you say no, well, you may want to start calling your personal lawyer because there, there may be some liability questions to be answered down the road. But again, yeah. this is why I founded the Conscience Religious Freedom Division, to get over that bureaucratic intransigence. The initial a- a res- response is, wait, you have a religious reason for an exception? No. No exceptions, no, no reason whatsoever. And getting over that and educating people that, no, this is in fact the law. The law requires you to allow space for religious conscience. And in this instance, it actually helps public health in such a clear way that the resistance was just head scratching. But it was there, and it took almost to the end of the administration to overcome it. Do you think that the new administration, the Biden administration, will undercut that, or can they even undercut this win? It's really difficult to undercut it when you have career professionals in writing saying that this is what the law requires. How are you going to ignore that? How are you going to simply act like that didn't happen? How are you going to say to families who are now now have the availability to vaccinate their kids from dangerous diseases that are sometimes life-threatening? Are you going to turn to those families and say, I'm sorry, you're not going to get these vaccines and tough luck. And if there is a, a an outbreak, it's, it's, it's tough luck. That, that just makes no sense. So I'm hopeful that they will continue what we set up and actually respect conscience and, and when it comes to vaccines. And it, it does bring up the broader question. Why in the world are you still using morally tainted abortion-derived cell lines? We, we have the technology to use different cell lines. We have the technology to use new ones that could be more efficacious. We had that question with the stem cell debate. We had the issue with baby body parts from abortions debate. You don't have to go to abortion to, to, to further science and research. It's not necessary. And in fact, sometimes I think there's an ideology creeping in that they want to use aborted fetal cells on purpose, almost to make a point. And again, this, this brings a question of uh, abortion ideology creeping into everything. And it, 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 it taints the practice of medicine. It taints the practice of science. We got to get away from using abortion and abortion cells because, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And science is about human growth and development. HHS is about furthering health and human services for all Americans from conception until natural health, which is something we added to the strategic plan under the Trump administration, under Secretary Azar. Is President Biden going to take that away and say no? Only some members of the human family deserve protection. Again, we'll see. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There's so many avenues you could go down to ask follow-up questions on this, but um, we're going we're gonna to move on a bit. Um, so, Roger, you've talked about some of these things already, um, but what do you believe was your greatest accomplishment as the Director of Office for Civil Rights? And, and what, do you, what did you leave unfinished? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to choose a favorite. I think the legacy will be uh, restoring. <laughs> like your fa- who's your favorite child? My favorite kid, yeah. I think the legacy will be restoring <laughs> conscience and religious freedom to its proper place. And among the first of our civil rights, I think that will be the legacy. 
But the work we did during the pandemic, standing up for the equal, equal dignity of everybody, regardless of disability or advanced age, that was so crucially important because lives were changed and culture was changed by the strong stand we, we took. The National Academy of Medicine adopted our views as the standard, and this is going to outlast uh, this crisis. Anytime there's going to be a future question of rationing of resource sources, the closer we get to socialized medicine, we're going to have some panel saying you get to live and you get to die. That's going to be a tough question. And now we had set the standard saying there are lines that cannot be crossed, that there is a dignity of human life and you can't throw away people and treat them as dispensable because of they're not useful under disability. That's incredibly important. And third, we actually worked on HIPAA. We are the HIPAA regulators. I was the chief HIPAA enforcer for the country. And we allowed the use of telehealth and Zoom uh, and FaceTime for video calls during the pandemic. That has revolutionized medicine. And I think we saved lives where people were able to talk to their doctor in the middle of the pandemic on Zoom and FaceTime and say, hey, doc, I have this lump or I have this mole. I mean, what do you think here? Take a look at it and, hey, call you in. And it turned out to be cancer. And I, I think we we have saved lives in the work we did at HHS Civil Rights. So many things to be proud of. And, and I hope that's a, a legacy that will be continued by the Biden administration. Yeah. How about things you left unfinished? Is there anything that you wish you could have gotten accomplished but didn't? We... Well, I'm looking back, we, we accomplished just about every goal I wanted. There were some things that I had hoped we had actually finalized regulations on. Re- religious freedom procedural rule, I, I would, would love to see finalized. Some of the rules on infant lives and persons with disability, I would like to see finalized. But they are there to be picked up and carried over the finish line. So we, we it's, it's many of the things are up to now the Biden administration first to not reverse the legacy we put in, and second, to put over the finish line the, the few remaining things that were left to be done. But overall, if it was the most pro-life religious freedom administration in history, and I think the HHS Civil Rights Office was the most pro-life religious freedom and pro-disability rights of the entire federal government in history. So those things are very, very hard to undo. Again, it starts with personnel. That's why I'm very worried about Javier Becerra. He should not get through because he would I believe, do everything in his power to undo those wonderful things we accomplished in in law enforcement and policy. Yeah. And I just want to say um, from the NCBC, thank you. Uh, we, we followed your work um, in, in your time at HHS with great interest and just very, very thankful to you and your office for the work that you did. So, so thank you and God bless you for that. Oh, thank you. There was so much support, so many prayers, so many people on the outside rooting us on. I wish I could have coordinated more explicitly, but there were rules we had to follow. But I, I saw and heard people's voices of support. Also saw a whole lot of opposition. And I tried to be as respectful to the, to the opponents as possible and meet with everybody and to show them that we do have areas of common ground. And that's another thing I'm very proud of is that what we did, we did it right. We did it in the right way. And we had the right people, and we always were willing to listen and to show respect, even to people who disagreed with us very, very deeply. We're all part of the same human family, and that helped to build some important bridges. Yeah, excellent. All right, I'm going to ask you to put on your uh, your your legal – well, look into your legal crystal ball here for a second. So recently, Justice uh, U.S. Supreme Court of Justice Samuel Alito stated, quote, Religious liberty is in danger of becoming a second-class right, unquote. 
evaluate this claim. It's, do, you, do you agree with what Justice Alito said? And, and what does religious liberty look like in the future? If you have fact checkers, it is 100% true. And more than just true, it's not just a, a threat, it is happening now. There is a move afoot of secularism now being displacing religious belief in the public square. And there's, there's a difference between allowing all religious beliefs to be able to have a voice and flourish according to their best lights. And that's the genius of the American system. And then there is a all or nothing. You must be either a one religion or, 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 or you're driven out of the public square or the more real threat. You must have secularism essentially as the, the religion. You tried that in revolutionary France during the French revolutionary times, right? Where you had the, the, the cult of reason, reason was, absolutely. was displacing uh, the place of religion in the public square. We're moving towards that where you have this militant type secularism that treats religious believers and religious belief kind of like secondhand smoke. You could do it in the privacy of your own home, but keep it away from me and keep it out of the public square and certainly keep it away from the children. And it's that sort of knee jerk reaction. And I saw it in the federal government where any, any people with a religious perspective or a religious voice were targeted for exclusion. People didn't want them to receive federal grants because they had a religious identity, and that's flat-out discrimination. Now, thankfully, we have some fantastic Supreme Court appointments under the Trump era. Carrie Severino, my wife, had a little something to do with that and helping fantastic people get through, and that's that's the sign of hope. However, in Congress and with this president, for all the talk of, of trying to pull the Catholic card, he's done nothing but signal animosity towards views that are held dear by Catholics uh, other Christians, Jews, and Muslims when it comes to the sanctity of human life and religious freedom. So one question for President Biden is, if, if you taught your Catholic faith so much, are you in favor of Catholic hospitals being forced to assist in abortions? Yes or no? Flat question. Get on the record. Are you in favor of that? Because I have a pretty good qu- idea of what Javier Becerra would say if he's HHS secretary. He'd say, yeah, they'd be, they should be forced to assist in abortions because he believes abortion is health care, a fundamental right for everybody. It should be paid for by public money and taxpayers. So you, you can't have it both ways. You can't claim the mantle of faith, yet take the side of militant secularists that are trying to say that the, the religious perspective uh, has no place in health care. That if you don't buy into the full package of abortion on demand, then you have no right to be in healthcare. You have no right to be an OBGYN if you refuse to perform abortions. You have no right to be in a practice of medicine if you don't buy on with every single new uh, procedure when it comes to sex reassignment and gender identity questions. It's not a question of, is this available anywhere? These procedures are available widely. It's a question of who's going to pay for it and who's going to be forced to perform it. That's really what it's about. And so Justice Alito was right that the fight is really going to be there if people of goodwill will have space to be themselves and be a, a, and act according to their best medical judgment and according to their profound moral and religious convictions on these highly contested questions. Yeah. I was wondering, get your take on... It, kind of my question is, what's happened to the First Amendment in our country? And I, I'm thinking about this recently because, and I don't know, Roger, if if, if you know of the Catholic Benefits Association, if you've heard of them. I would yes, have, and they have, a, a, they have a lawsuit and yeah. 
Yeah. So the, the, the Catholic Benefits Association gained permanent injunctive relief for all its members against the, the Obama-Biden um, contraception and sterilization coverage mandate. They got that a couple of years ago. But just recently, about a month ago, they received a permanent they, they received permanent injunctive relief against the uh, 2016 uh, regulation interpreting Section 1557 to mandate insurance coverage for so-called gender transitioning. So they got a you know, they got injunctive relief for that. So they don't, that's not, their, their members cannot be forced to do that. Now that's a good, those are good things. I, I'm not trying to, you know, say that they're not, but it strikes me that where are we today that the Catholic Benefits Association, Catholic employers need to get a federal judge to give them permanent injunctive relief from things that violate, you know, that violate the Catholic faith. And what does that say about us? And, and what does that say about the free exercise of religion that we have in the First Amendment? I'm wondering if you could just comment on that. It means we're not in a good place, that there's so much more work to be done. The Little Sisters of the Poor have been hounded by the federal government and by Javier Becerra himself right. in litigation for, it must be over a decade now. Over and over again, they've had to defend themselves in court, distracting them from their mission of serving the elderly poor. They really. If you think about it, they just want to be left alone to do their their work. Who could be against that? But they've been hounded interminably. And Javier Becerra was part of a lawsuit against HHS to prevent them from getting protection. The Trump administration, and I had a role in this, helped to pr provide protection for the Little Sisters of the Poor and anybody who does not want to provide contraceptive coverage uh, according to their faith. There's plenty of contraceptives in America if you want it. Easily available. Don't force it to be all or nothing that every single last person must buy onto it and must support it. Yet that's where the Biden administration is. They, he has said that he wants to undo those protections as part of his executive order. He said we should scale that back and abandon the Little Sisters and go back to hounding them out of business, out of the public square. That's not where we should be. It's, it's, it's a, a sad chapter in American life to see this, that they will not let the little, leave the little sisters alone. They are relentless, which it signals a broader picture. Those winds of secularism that I talked about, it really has turned into an all or nothing thing. The initial, uh, call it the initial sale was, don't worry about it. We want to push abortion and LGBT issues as a matter of individual personal liberty. Just let people live how they want to live. A live and let it live question. Let people uh, have the surgeries as they want. That's all they want. It morphed into more than that. Now we want it to be paid for. Not only paid for, you be, must be the one to use your talents to perform the abortion. That's what I mean by all or nothing. And, and that is dangerous for America. It's contrary to our foundational values. It violates the First Amendment. And our last resort is the courts. But it shouldn't be. Our first resort should be to our neighbors, right? The, uh, the American ethic, neighbor looking out for neighbor and saying we have all sorts of different views on fundamental questions about human life and human flourishing. We could live together in peace. And that should be the first line. Second line should be our elected representatives should be reflecting our values and the constitution. Third should be the regulatory state. They actually are where so many of our laws are made and people need to be aware that that's where the lawmaking happens and need to comment when HHS, for example, issues a regulation that's going to violate your conscience. 
And then finally, if all else fails, we have the courts. Finally, if all else fails, and that should be the last resort. And we have some good justices now. We see some judges resigning in order to try to give uh, President Biden a pushback on some good conservative judges. And that needs to be looked at as well. You know, President Biden has to be held accountable for the judges he nominates because they are far too important because that's often the the final defense for conscience, life, and religious freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, again, lots of different areas we could go down, but uh, we could be here all day talking. Roger, you've talked about this in a number of different ways uh, already, but what can we expect from the Biden administration in terms of conscience and religious liberty moving forward? I am not hopeful. I think there has to be a tremendous pushback from the American people, starting with a, a consensus view of Americans of goodwill saying that Becerra is too extreme on abortion and not the right person to be the head of HHS, that people like Dr. Rachel Levine are also not the right person for HHS, that we need to push back and say there needs to be, if Biden is to be held to his word, any semblance of unity, then it cannot be all or nothing. President Biden repeatedly at the inauguration said he was about unity and healing. Well, put your money where your mouth is. Unity and healing means you have to leave space for people who disagree to live their lives and not putting divisive picks like Becerra to be head of HHS. That sends absolutely the wrong message. And not to say you're going to revoke the, the Hyde Amendment that sends the wrong message. That means you, you're really in not for unity, but for winner takes all. And that, that's troubling. We have, we've had enough division so far in America, and I hope we don't see more of it in the coming days. Yeah. All right. A few final questions. First, what's the Administrative Conference of the United States, and why have you filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration with regard mm-hmm. to it? It is one of the best kept secrets of independent agencies. It is a group of professionals, lawyers, federal officials, regulators who come together like a think tank to come up with good governance ideas when it comes to regulatory procedures. As I mentioned earlier, so much of our lives are now governed by regulations coming out of agencies that we need to have more transparency, more efficacy, more efficiency. Some of these things only uh, admin law geek would love, but it is crucially important that we have the right people coming up with the right ideas to improve the way we are governed by these regulations. So many of these regulations are outdated, they're voluminous, they're impenetrable, nobody knows what they mean, and people need to have a voice in how they're governed. So Congress passed the Administrative Conference Act decades ago to bring the best minds together. Justice Scalia, in fact, was the head of it for a time to come together and to come up with ideas and advise agencies on how they could improve their processes. They have a modest budget. They could get some white papers out and they give their advice, which has some some pretty good weight. President Biden said to me after I'd served from August to January and then was re-upped in January for a three-year term, he said my services were no longer needed, that I was to be dismissed within 24 hours and terminated. I said, no, I will not resign. I have a three-year term. It was set up by Congress to create independency, to create independence, precisely to give the best people the best advice. I'm not in the White House, 
making policy, I would definitely say, okay, yes, you get to pick your people who you want to surround yourself to for their administration policy. It is not a policy-making position. It is an advisory council position. What is he afraid of? What advice is he afraid to hear from me and other council members he asked to resign? It's pettiness. It's vindictive. It's him going out of his way to create disunity when we should be coming together. And it's also against the law. Congress said three years, and that's what it says under the law. President Trump did not go out of his way to dismiss people from the Obama administration that were appointed to the administrative conference. In fact, I believe this is the first time any president, any, has sought to dismiss somebody early from their term. And I'm not going to be bullied around. The ground ground rules should be the same regardless of administration. If President Biden doesn't think that administrative uh, independent agencies are actually independent, okay, fine. We'll hear his arguments in court. But Congress said what it said, and we abided by those rules, and I look forward to hearing what he what he has to say about it. But again, I will not be bullied out of my position, and I have a lot to offer and have been offering it since August. And again, this is pettiness and vindictiveness on his part that I won't simply roll over and, and go away. Where does this uh, lawsuit stand right now? Do you know? In the district of, it's in the district, district court of the District of Columbia, federal court, and we're waiting to hear their answer. And and we're, I'm very eager to see what they have to say, uh, because I do believe the law is in, on my side. And whatever happens, at least we'll have clarity as to what the ground rules are, because I don't believe in heads you win, tails I lose. The rules have to be applied equally across administrations. And President Trump played by one set of rules, and President Biden has ignored those rules and gone against them. And that's something that I believe is unjust. Yeah. Any idea when you'll hear from the court? Unclear, unclear, but we hope yeah. to, to move quick, quickly on this. All right. Recently, you were named Senior Fellow at the Ethics Public Policy Center, mm-hmm. and you head the, the center's HHS Accountability Project. So what is this project, and what do you seek to accomplish through it? The project is pretty much what it says. We want to hold HHS accountable, but accountable to what? Accountable to its mission. Under President Trump and Secretary Azar, we clarified that not only is HHS there to further the health and well-being of Americans, but all Americans included from conception until natural death. That is crucially important because our understanding of the question of what it means to be a human person is fundamental to how we deliver healthcare and human services. You can't just gloss over that question, who is a member of the human family? Abortion is not healthcare. And I'm afraid that the Biden administration thinks it is. So we want to hold them accountable to what the law is. And so many laws say that abortion has no place in healthcare. And those laws need to be enforced, like the Hyde Amendment, like the Weldon Amendment, that conscience needs to be enforced, that ideology is not put over science on questions of what it means to be a man and a woman with respect to healthcare. Again, those have real world consequences to the furtherance of science and the practice of medicine. And people has to have, have to have space to disagree. People of goodwill could come to different conclusions on these, these questions of philosophy that touch on so many issues. You could come to different conclusions, but there has to be space for disagreements. And so we're going to hold HHS accountable to its mission to bring together all Americans and President Biden's promise of unity on this score. So we're going to be watching. And our first big effort has been to say no to Javier Becerra as HHS because it goes counter to that mission of HHS and that promise of 
unity from President Biden and others. Very well said. Roger, I give you the last word. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Know your rights and flex them. It really is use or lose. If you believe in conscience and religious freedom, you have to stand up for those rights. Complain to the Office for Civil Rights of HHS, hhs.gov slash OCR. If you, in the question of healthcare and human services, you feel your rights are being violated. On race, on sex, national origin, disability, disability, and conscience and religious freedom. If you do not complain, you're, you're, there's a risk that your rights not only will not be respected, they will be oppressed. Eventually, they will come for you if you do not stand for your rights. And that's what Justice Alito fears that's happening in the area of law. And you got to get ahead of it and make sure you let people know that you're going to stand up for your rights. That's the only way. Awesome. Roger Severino, thank you for joining us on our Bioethics On Air podcast today. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.